Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Shall we do this show? We should. We should. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's do this thing. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> you start. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. That was good. That was a good. Uh, uh, that was a nice. It was a punchy open. Was it? Was yeah. it musical? Yeah. No, that was good. Uh, that was good. Uh, I. Uh, gosh, we got everybody is sick in this house, and yeah. I, I don't mean that. That's actually not true. Only one person, the littlest person in my house, is sick. But he is so sick that it has made everybody appear sick to me. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to touch anybody. There's no more hugging. There's just it's all over because I'm so paranoid about. It. They're they're all carriers. We know does, we've does, seen the trailers to World War Z. That's yeah, right. Know does, your ha- does your house look like ET when, when yeah. the uh, yeah the no it's been tented. And, yeah, yeah. I'm full Every, on. Everybody walks in in the big the big uh, outfits. Yeah, it's a full tenting. Nice. Yeah. How are you? How's your week? Big good. Week. Good. Busy. Good. Busy. Good. But good. What are you doing tomorrow? Are you doing Busy. anything special? Tomorrow's uh, like, May third, like Iron Man. <gasps> what? Shocking! Are you gonna see full uh, 3D IMAX? No. 48 frames per second. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this one 96 frames per I second? I think it's 96 and a half frames per second. Uh, this should be. I'm. I am very much looking for. Very, very much looking forward to this. Uh, to this film. Yeah, it's been. It's one of those man. It's being a little bit over promoted. I don't like that. You know, we did we talk about the fact that there are two versions of this, or there there are at least two versions of this movie. Uh, the Chinese, I, what they did for China. Oh yes, I I, I know we talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, then, I think we. Then I don't want to talk about it the show or off off mic, but yeah. Well, the whole uh, the whole concept is, you know, they've they've uh, it, it looks like, <laughs> believe it or not, the movie industry, film industry is waking up to variable data marketing. Uh, and so with Iron Man, we have a great example of that where, um, the, uh, filmmakers say, you know what, we have this great big market in China. And so we're going to just right smack in the middle of the film. We're going to go to China and we're going to shoot with new, like big Chinese stars, entirely new content for the movie that is specifically takes place in China in Tiananmen Square, wherever it is, all the famous places with Chinese actors and release Iron Man 3 the Chinese version, which is our version, but with all this new Chinese stuff in it, in China. Do you think our, like when they release it here on Blu-ray and DVD, do you think it would have both versions, or do you think that version will only be for Asian markets? I don't know. I don't know. That seems interesting. It seems like a thing that should that they would probably keep uh, to Asian markets because that seems like a thing they would do. Yeah, it does. Do you know what I mean? Like. 
How dumb. And plus, you know, bootleg market. Well, and you know, that uh, Iron Man 3 opened already overseas. Right. And the reason for that is the uh, the piracy. Right. Just get it out there fast. Yeah. Get it out there before it is playing in the States. They have a chance to make yeah. like copies that are on the streets selling before it even opens overseas. Well, it's much so more convenient way, because now yeah. they can actually make the bootlegs in the same place they're going to sell them. That reduces time to market. Exactly. Maybe that's where we get our Chinese versions. We're going to start bootlegging the Chinese versions of all these films. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm still looking forward to it. I'm not kidding. But I tell you, I, I will be seeing it in just regular, regular old uh, 2D, because according to the website we talked exactly. about on the show, Real or Fake 3D, this is a fake 3D film. It was a post-conversion. So that just makes it a little less exciting for me to see in, I'm in the third dimension. absolutely with you, and I, I think I enjoy it more in 2D. Although I'm going to tell you, I saw a film this week uh, that surprised the heck out of me. And that was? Would you like to, would you like to know what it was? It I was, would like it to. It was uh, The Crudes. Oh, okay. I did. My son, We it was his birthday weekend, and we do uh, birthday movies on birthday weekends. And uh, he really wanted to see The Croods, and I didn't know anything of it. Uh, I knew that, you know, it was an Emma Stone thing and, uh, you know, Nicolas Cage and Cavemen. That's about it. Yeah. This was a beautiful film. Yeah. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Uh, there with the way, I mean, I've I've never quite seen water uh water and just general fluid dynamics uh cg fluid dynamics done quite this way i mean it was it was gorgeous hmm. and according to the real or or fake 3d website this is a real 3d that's right uh, which i should have seen in 3d but we saw it in 2d because the glasses don't fit his head uh, yeah. but it honestly it makes me want to go back and see it it's very much a daddy daughter movie so uh if you have young daughters you should see this movie with them uh it's it's uh, quite good I've been intending to take my daughter to see that every weekend since it opened. And yeah. for one reason or another, something's come up and we have not been able to see it. So I am definitely looking forward to catching that with her at some point soon. Yes, it's very sweet. It's a Excellent. Must, it, it, Excellent. It's a must catch in 3D. I think this one, this one's probably worth seeing in 3D. Nice. Uh, you, know what, you know what I saw this weekend? Do tell. Finally catching up. Uh, on on the big thing that's according to your father worth bailing on a seven year old's birthday party. I went Ironically, saw Oblivion. Yes. <laughs> I haven't yet seen it. What what do you think? I liked it. I don't know if I'd say it's worth bailing on a on a on a seven year old's birthday party. But it was but, good. But I enjoyed it. I know some people have problems with it. The story takes a turn toward the end that uh, I think you kind of buy into or you don't. I bought into it all the way. I really enjoyed it. Had a great time. It had some interesting things going on. And uh, it was gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous to watch. Um, so I had a great time. And uh, the funny thing is, my wife and I also started this weekend for I, I some strange reason. I think it's because I did my James Bond series where I watched every James Bond movie. My wife hates James Bond, and so she really was upset that I chose to do that. So I was trying to find a series we could watch together, and right. so we started the Tom Cruise series. We started watching every, <laughs> every Tom, Cruise Tom Cruise movie, movie. from the beginning. So I how mean, far I, are I enjoy, you? We're only two movies in, and then I saw Oblivion. But I've got to say, the first movie that he was in is called Endless Love right? from 1981. Uh, it was a Brooke Shields uh, 
romance film. Uh, Tom Cruise is in it for about a minute. And it was one of the most horrible films I've ever seen. Right. It was painful to sit through. And it, it, it's just illogical. It's a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old who fall in love. And it's this is oh, the schmaltzy romance. The parent, the parents of the daughter come down and see them making love in front of the fire. The mother doesn't do anything. She just watches and like pines for her youth. Um, it was just an abysmal, uh, abysmal film. But he makes up for it with taps, right? You guys have already been through I, taps. That was my first time watching taps. I one of the reasons I we ended up uh, picking Tom Cruise is because I have seen so few of his early films. So, yeah, I'd never seen Taps, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. He's definitely, like, right from the start, out of the gate, he is so full of energy. <laughs> He's like, it, it's it's always been there. He is Mr. Energy in his performances. That is the truth. He was yes. practically jumping on couches in this one. But this was, uh, Taps is one of those movies with great performances from a lot of people, Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn, and I mean, and, Giancarlo Esposito. Exactly, I had no yeah. idea. It's like watching all these faces of these people. It's like, wow, this is what they looked like, yeah. you know, thirty years ago. Well, it's so funny. It's that same kind of experience, you know, with the nineteen sixty or nineteen seventy six films. I mean, it's just like it, getting those sort of flashback moments. Yeah. Uh, so what's next? Uh, are you up? When when do we hit like uh, all the right moves? Uh, legend. Those are later, right? Those, do we still have to get through the outsiders? Yeah, we got to finish up with a few more from uh, those early '80s. Yeah. Like we've got to watch uh, "Losing It." That's uh, I think our next one that we've got to watch, and uh, then we jump into like all the right moves and uh, um, the outsiders, risky business. Oh yeah, and then, well, and then it's like it, it. Then it's a cake. Then walk. it's big. Then it's like yeah. Legend, Top Gun, Color Money. Yeah, yeah. So crazy. Oh so, yeah. I, That's I think awesome. That's a good series, man. There's be, a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of good ones. A lot of ones I don't like uh, as much, but I'm looking forward to it. I think that uh, I think I'll enjoy it. So that's awesome. Right, yeah. Don't don't forget to hit uh, Space Station 3D a documentary. He narrates about the International Space Station. I want to make sure you do that. You see every minute of that. Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. All right. Yep. Well, this, so this is the next reel. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, I'm Pete. That's Andy. And we talk about movies a lot. And uh, we're if you want to find out more about us, head over to thenextreel.com. Uh, there you can find out what movies we're talking about. You can catch up with The Film Board, our monthly uh, review of new movies. And uh, you can subscribe to the show in iTunes uh, for free or listen to the show on the website, whatever works for you. Uh, we sure do appreciate kind comments and, and reviews. It helps other people discover the show. And make sure you like us on Facebook so that uh, you can keep up with the discussion that's going on over there. Uh, on this show, we talk about old movies usually, and this we're, right now we're, we're wrapping up our a series on uh, great films of 1976, and at the very same time, uh, we are launching a brief series on Patty Chayefsky, the fantastic screenwriter of the era. Here, here. I, I think I got everything. I uh, think so. So let's talk trailers. Uh, shall we do that? Sure. Do you want to go first? I want. I think I should go first because mine's kind of. I, I'm. I'm looking less forward to mine than I am to yours. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I'm only doing this one because of you. I was not interested. It, in fact, I actually have this movie in my library. The first one. This is the sequel to the first one, which I have in my library, and I have no memory of actually watching it. <laughs> so it, it didn't stick well with me. But the second trailer for Red Two. 
Uh, Red One. When did Red come out? Nineteen or nineteen oh seven? Back like two thousand seven, two thousand ten, something like that. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a it's a Bruce Willis thing. You know, they get they, it. It falls in the uh, genre of geriatric action film that I, I think was. Uh, mm-hmm. Do we say it was really ushered in this genre with the Expendables? Or I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and so uh, in terms of uh, modern geriatric action, uh, we get an uh, one of those just unreal casts in this uh, action film. We got Bruce Willis, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Mary Louise Parker, John Malkovich, uh, Byung Hun Lee is an assassin, uh, Helen Mirren really. Uh, it just goes on and on with Anthony Hopkins uh, playing uh, daffy old uh, CIA man. It's it is. Uh, I don't know if it looks good. I honestly, I've, I've given up making any sort of trailer judgment on movies like these because you apparently say I should see The Expendables. I've never seen any of them. I, I said the first one was was entertaining. I didn't say it was good. You said get out there and see it because it's so great. <laughs> and you should see both of them, and I. It, and so you know now because of you, I'm kind of on the lookout for these geriatric uh, action films. And the second trailer, which came out this week for Red Two, was the first time it actually piqued my interest. I it made me laugh. John Malkovich is, uh, you know, seriously, he he's funny. He's he's a funny man, and he plays uh, he plays crazy well. He he certainly does, and any excuse to see him do that is. Uh, is welcome in my book, so I may just give this one a shot. All right. So that was it. That's uh, that's mine. It's coming. Uh, blast. When is it coming, Andy? Nineteenth of July, two thousand thirteen, uh, and it is uh, directed by Dean Parisot, Parasot, Par- uh. Parasite, uh, <laughs> written by John Huber and Eric Huber, and there you go. Red two. All that good stuff. All right. Get, do yours. I'm very excited about this. One. Well, my trailer is for a, a film called The History of Future Folk. It, it looks like the strangest little movie. It, lo- I, it won at the uh, Fantastic Fest last year. And it looks, uh, it looks fun. It looks like uh, a wacky musical sci-fi comedy something or other thing going on. It's basically about some aliens from the planet Hondo who come down and just as they're about to destroy the earth, they hear our music in the form of the, the elevator music playing in a store and they fall for like folk music and they decide instead of destroying the earth, they're going to form a band. (laughs) And so they start playing around the place. And uh, yeah, uh, it, they, the, the title on the, uh, advertising says probably the only alien folk duo sci-fi action romance comedy movie ever made. <laughs> oh goodness! So it looks cheap, it looks goofy, it looks fun, and I I think it'll be uh, a, a wild time. So John Mitchell uh, co-wrote it with uh, and and directed it. He co-wrote it with Jeremy Kip Walker, and it just looks like a, an interesting little independent film. It looks it looks great. Totally yeah. worth seeing. Um, uh, sure. You can head to futurefolk.com to learn more about the movie if you want to skip all the uh, IMDb stuff. Yeah. looks great. Yeah, and it's, uh, it looks like their first feature. They did some shorts, and, and here's their first feature. And, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope it uh, does something for them because it looks like a fun one. comes out at the end of May. Fan 
freaking tastic. You know, the other one I'm getting more and more excited about is um, is the the uh, Ricky J film coming up. Oh, the magic one. It's not. It's not. Uh, as far as I can tell, so far, it's not coming to uh, Portland. But I'm and so. But I'm watching constantly. The uh, you know he's he's been on the press tour. And so you can find a whole bunch of clips on YouTube of him talking to Dave Letterman. And uh, the Letterman bit is actually quite good, uh, uh, talking about the difference between a con and magic in cards. Mm-hmm. And he he plays just a fantastic close-up sleight of hand bit on, on Letterman that you just never see coming. He's so good. Interesting. Uh, yeah, he's interesting, like the, the actor slash magician. So. Right, right. Good old Ricky J. Uh, do we have another, any other news to talk about? You know, Steven Soderbergh had his uh, diatribe with the uh, film industry at uh, was it the San Francisco Film Festival? Yeah, this week? what'd you think of that? Pretty interesting. Well, t- give yeah, give some talking points here. Well, we have. I, I don't know if I have talking points. I, I read it a number of days ago, and I I can't remember it uh, that well. But it, it you know he he spoke about the kind of the nature of the business right now and how it's shifted and changed, and you know why we make films, why we watch films, are films really helping? And, uh, you know, just his feel about the kind of the corporate control of it. But, you know, it still is something that's worth going out and making because that's what we are. We are artists. It may not actually end up helping anybody, but, you know, it's something we got to do. And, you know, that seemed to kind of be the long and short of it. It was a little depressing and and it was a smack of reality. When you read it, but it was smart. It was really smart, well told, and I, I enjoyed reading it and thinking about it. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> I say that snidely, only because I haven't really uh, thought much about it yet. I, you know, at this point, he's he's so uh, he's just a little bit schizophrenic about his feelings toward film. I think, and so, you know, I well, it's a, it's a it's a frustrating business. It's a yeah. business that gives him tons of money. As long as he cranks out Ocean's uh, Eleven types of movies, the minute he wants to do something a little daring and a little risky, like when he was trying to do Moneyball, they uh, they freak out and they say, you know, this is too. We're we're just not convinced that that this is going to actually make any money. We think this is a little too crazy, and so no, you can't have any money. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I buy that, but there are also there are channels for making making you know small films and there are channels for making big films and if yeah. he wants to make films that cost uh the kind of of money that he you know wants to make or that cost the kind of money, uh, money oceans uh, you know cost to make he's either going to have to pony it up himself or go to a studio that has demands isn't that what yeah. we're seeing with that we're seeing that with the uh, zach braff thing i mean here's zach braff who's worth apparently he's worth a lot of money a lot of people upset with he, that you know we talked about the kickstarter thing last week that he's making the sequel to garden state uh, and he went to Kickstarter first, uh, and there are people who are upset, saying, you know, this is for the indie artists who are trying to get, uh, we're, uh, you know, Kickstarter is all about getting the unknown. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit ab- about this, the whole contamination effect of Kickstarter. If you have too many big names in there, the, the small names won't get noticed, which is what, you know, many believe Kickstarter is for. And, um, you know, I to me, it just seems like another channel. And, and um you know, now we have a mechanism where the market can will out, and that Soderbergh, um, you know, does his mad as hell moment, uh, has his mad as hell moment, kind of every two years. Uh, it, it's it it sort of loses impact. 
Yeah, maybe I missed it two years ago. Well, maybe it's I, not two years. Maybe it's more than that. But it was the last <laughs> time he decided he wanted to quit and paint and make toast. <laughs> um, we have, uh, we have. Uh, should we talk about the the movie? Do we have other news? You know, we should say no, we, we should go to Facebook because there are some some really great links. Uh, there was a, a a great post. We'd love to hear some commentary on on feelings on Dolby Atmos. Uh, I have not been a part of an atmos experience yet have you yeah no there's none near me yeah i'd so have I'm... to drive at least six hours to get to one not worth it i'm worried that it's totally not worth it there is the smallest uh, uh film ever made the subatomic film a boy and his atom definitely worth seeing and uh what else do we have we had uh, uh, uh the uh pbs the movie pbs meets the avengers <laughs> right <laughs> Amusing. So you should check that out on Facebook. Some good links there. Uh, and uh, that's facebook.com slash the next reel. The next reel, yes, go there. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this movie. Yes. Let's. I sure do like it. Yeah. Sure do. So we this is what, fifth of our nineteen seventy six series. And uh, the sixth 1976 film we've talked about because we also talked about uh, All the President's Men. Right, which is now in the series. Which is now in the series. Would this be your favorite of the films of 1976 we've discussed? Uh, Yes, yes, it would. It would be my favorite. Yeah. It's tough to beat this. this. You know, it's tough tough to beat. uh, I I feel uh, some... You know, there are those those films that um, that you feel sort of personal kind of ownership of. Uh-huh. Uh, this was uh, I, you know, my my dad uh, and uh, you know I grew up in the news business. My dad was a newsman all of his life, and and you know I grew up as the boss's son in a newsroom, and um, this was the first uh, film that I saw that was about the business. And I was just, I remember being really moved by it. It was, you know, it's that, it's again, that family connection. I think we, you know, we've talked about that before that, you know, there's, there's that connection that you feel with when you see the movie for the first time with somebody very important to you. And we, my dad and I kind of have shared that. Um, not only that, it has become such a, uh, such gospel, uh, the, the sort of unspoken gospel to this industry, because everything that Chayefsky is writing at this time is, has essentially come to pass, right? The blackness of the comedy that he was, uh, you know, he was going for uh, as that movie closes, as network closes, is we haven't quite gotten that far, but it's tough to see, you know, uh, an end to where we have gone, you know, and, and down that road. So I, I am just fascinated by um, his... Uh, prescience in writing this movie as as the industry has continued to evolve in this direction absolutely and it's funny because uh sydney lumet who directed it and chayefsky always used to say when they were talking about this film that it's not a satire of the tv industry it's sheer reportage they would say everything that they're talking about in the movie is going on it's all already there it's like even back then in 1976 this was the the direction everything was taking so it it, but but you're right it really has the industry the tv industry really has continued transforming to a point where uh it it almost has become a self-satire and all of the stuff that they were talking about in this film it's just every day and we're all just we're all so used to it and it almost doesn't even phase us that 
this reality TV and this this type of news that is really just nothing more than entertainment is just what we fill our our um, brains with every time we're watching TV now. Right, right. Uh, it, we've we've sort of missed the we missed the trans the transition. Yeah. Uh, in in many respects, and I think that's one of the things that that network does so exceptionally well is is to um, the the break between Act One and Act Two, when uh, it, you know as we we move into the the sort of the success era for this network, um, you know, is such a it, it's such a clear uh, transition between you know the we used to be a news organization and now we're a crazy organization, and I I think it's just it's brilliant uh, the way they play this. I the, one of the things I think is so interesting about this. I we should talk first about Chayefsky, and and I I wonder if you want to start by reflecting a little bit on some of the, the on that that New York Times link that you uh, you had forwarded me of Chayefsky's notes. I found that really moving. Yeah, I mean, this was a guy who I mean he had been, uh, you know, born and. And raised in New York, he had served in the military. He had been writing for TV uh, almost from its infancy. He had seen a lot of America. He, America. He had seen the changes America had been going through. He was not really happy with the the changes of his country, with the changes of of TV, the industry he was working in. And and he said, you know, he that American people. This was a note he wrote to himself. American people don't want jolly, happy family type shows like Eyewitness Eyewitness News. People want angry shows. This is what uh, you know America was looking forward to. So they base their programming on anger. At the moment, the successful sitcom shows are those that make political comments, mild, bland, liberal political comments on racism, Watergate, political corruption, reactionary neighbors, etc. Uh, this station in his uh, in the movie, in the script, network, uh, and in the film, UBC, decides to go one step better and make genuinely angry sitcoms, so they, they become sit-tragedies, is what he calls them. He, he really was... In a way, he was mad as hell, right. and he and he was this this character who was just not happy with the way that he was seeing his industry and the country going, and he needed to find a way to voice everything that he felt about it in a, a very smart piece that spoke to all of these truths. Uh, that's uh, that's it. the The speech, um, the uh, meddling with the. Primal Forces of Nature, Mr. Beale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking it up because it's that good, and I didn't have it ready. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of the. Uh, it's a speech that Ned Beatty gives yes. toward the end of the film. Ned Beatty is the head of the the corporation that owns the network. Yes, this, and, was, this was at a time when corporations were starting to swoop in and buy up networks and essentially everything else that they could. This uh, this passage, he, you know, the the scene is um, to me, it's it's epic in its intimacy, right? It is he welcomes. This is immediately after uh, Howard Beale uh, urges the uh, the world, sixty million viewers who are watching, to uh, get up and send notes to the president to block a uh, a merger of these two major media organizations and 
you know, the president of this organization doesn't like that. And so this is his response. He welcomes Mr. Beale to his office. He warmly shakes his hand. He puts his, his, uh, puts his other hand around his back. He says, we're going to go to the conference room. I think it would be a, a more appropriate setting for the conversation we need to have. And as he, he closes, he just very gently closes, you know, flips the switch so that the curtains close automatically and then dims the lights. So all you see is the glowing sort of uh, accountants, hanging accountants lights that are over each chair at the desk. And then he begins to roar. Uh, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You, you think you have merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of our country, and now they must be, now they must be put, they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. He goes on to say, The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. Our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there is no war or famine, oppression or brutality, one vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused, and I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You might just be right, Mr. Beale. I find that, uh, you know, to me that is uh, uh, central to the the entire kind of schema of his argument. And and in the notes, in Chayefsky's notes that that uh, uh, we will post a link to that in the New York Times, you know, we see these this hand scribbled note saying, "I'm not, uh, I, I'm not on the side of anything." Right. Yeah, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just just presenting, as you say, it's reportage, um, and at the same time, it's hard to read this passage and not feel like Chayefsky, who used a by credit in this film, mm -hmm. uh, not just written by or story by or screenplay by. It was the film by Patty Chayefsky. Uh, it's hard to read that and not think this is a guy with a message. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, aside from the fact that he he came from theater and really felt, you know, and, and as did the filmmakers, the uh, the um, Sidney Lumet and the producer Howard Gottlieb, um, is it Got Gottlieb Gottfried? I'm forgetting his name, but um, they felt, you know, he needs to be credited. It's his it's his script. These are his words. I I think they could tell. I think everyone who read this script could tell this was completely honest this was a script completely from somebody who was saying something and yes there's an entertaining story here but there's so much more going on than just a a hollywood script this absolutely is should have been and was rightfully so credited as by patty chayefsky and you know you you think about this passage and you look at where we are today uh you know now we have these you know giant corporations and you are taken care of and i say that in you know heavily in air quotes taken care of and benefits and and uh you know if you don't say anything or upset a system in any way shape or form you are arguably this has come to pass that you are uh you're serving the common profit for the giant holding company uh, mm -hmm. In this world of business, and it's again that sort of uh, prescience of of Chayefsky's reportage here that is just stunning. Now, forty years later, 
Yeah, and and you know he then goes on to uh, Beale then goes on to go back on TV and talk to his viewers and say you're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning up here. You're beginning to think the tube is reality. Then your own lives are unreal. And he goes on and talks about that. And then at the end he says, um, what does he say? In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. And again, looking at the prescient words that he had put in his character's mouths then and looking at where we are now, I can only feel that he was like looking into the future as to how our society so much now views itself through the eyes of all of these shows about celebrities and these websites that are all about, oh, what's the latest, oh, watch the latest, you know, uh, clothing uh, malfunction from this celebrity. And, oh, look how... Uh, this pregnant celebrity is showing too much fat and just all of this stuff. It's it's like gone beyond this point where people aren't living their own lives. It's not real when you're just living. You're only really living if you're watching and you're absorbing this stuff that other people are doing. Yeah, the idea that that passive consumption is somehow, uh, you know, has somehow become one of the important things we do every day. Yeah. Uh you know, in in uh, there's a funny connection for me, and this is this may seem like a complete aside. Uh, do you uh, are you a uh, do you read TheVerge.com? Are you a Verge reader? I've read it. I don't regularly read it. Well, I'm not, I, you know I I read it because I'm a nerd, and I I really like what those guys are doing. I I love the the Verge uh, properties. I think they're doing some great work over there. And there's this there has been this kind of divergent. Uh, Angle, uh, Paul Miller is one of the writers over there, and he left the internet for a year and uh, wow. you know, canceled all his accounts, got rid of his smartphone, went back to a dumb feature phone, and uh, and and just you know got a PO box for real snail mail, and mm-hmm. stopped doing, uh, stopped getting online. He would file these essays once a week, and and uh, you know by putting them on a USB drive and walking them into the office and. Uh, and this is what they paid him to do: is to make these observations about what happens in life. Uh, you know, what is it that this mindless tube has been doing to you? Right. Um, and he filed yet yeah, on May first, uh, a couple days ago. He uh, that he came back online. They did this huge, you know, online video event at midnight, uh, April thirtieth. They got everybody together and they did a big countdown, like New Year's Eve kind of a thing. When he got back online and he wrote this fantastic, I don't know how many thousand word uh, essay um, on kind of summarizing his experience. And um, I I think there are some really uh, fundamental parallels. And I don't think he had Network or Chayefsky in mind when he's talking about kind of what this, what the the tube does to us. But it's absolutely worth reading in this context that, um, you know, the internet is what Chayefsky was arguing the tube was through Howard Beale that it has become the mindless consumption and what what and that was not the observation that Miller came uh came out with uh, in in his essay uh, uh, you know the we say that it's this mindless horrible thing but in fact you know the the internet serves a a, a much more interesting and deeply personal uh role um and and so it's worth reading we should post that I'll post the link to this one too especially yeah. in in this this conversation about uh, about words that that drive um, the sentiment of mindlessness. Wow. Uh, so the um, there was a I had a point there. I was coming back to it. No, I lost it. I got I actually brought up the Verge page and I started reading and I I teared up a little bit. 
It's really good. <laughs> the end is really quite good. Wow. Uh, so anyhow, um, so the whole let's let's can we look at the Howard Beale trajectory? Yeah. Over the course of the thing, the the film was uh, is said to be, and if you found anything different, uh, let me know. It was said to be inspired. Um, uh, Chayefsky had uh, heard of or experienced the um, uh, the uh, suicide of Christine uh, Chubbuck in Sarasota, Florida, who was an anchor woman uh, suffering from depression and uh, killed. She shot herself on camera uh, in yeah. 1974. And uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, which interestingly, Howard does actually mention in the original script. And I think they smartly probably took those words out because it probably was a little too recent, was a little too inappropriate still. Right, right. Uh, that is a that's a, a great point. And, you know, it, I'll tell you what not to do is uh, don't go looking for that video, uh, the Christine Chubbuck thing, because there it turns out there are a lot of media personalities who have done or attempted to do this, and you can find those videos very quickly. It's it, mm. it is horrific, horrible, depressing. Uh, it, but this event, the the Chubbuck event, uh, apparently inspired Chayefsky to start thinking about this, and that's why we get in the very open of the film. Um, we get Beale, who has come off the rails. We don't actually see him come off the rails. Uh, we you know the film opens with him and his buddy getting drunk and. Talking about the good old days, uh, Beale is uh, let down because the ratings had been falling, mm-hmm. and um, and he comes off the rails and says on the air, with only two weeks left to uh, to work, he says, "I'm going to kill myself in two weeks on the air." Yeah. And then where do we go from there? Well, you know, it's interesting. Initially, I mean, they view him as a lost man who really just has gone off the deep end he wasn't getting the ratings his life was in the uh just not going very well and really it's just like they rightfully at that point his boss max wonderfully played by william holden decides you know what we gotta let you go we can't keep you on the air well matt or or howard beale pleads him to come back on just one more time I'm just going to, you know, have my dignified exit. He goes on and he he again starts talking about how he was just he didn't have any more BS. He couldn't spew anything else out. And Max decides to let him run if this is how he wants to go out, this is how he's going to go out. Well, the the young up and comer in the programming department, wonderfully played by Faye Dunaway in this film, uh Diana she latches onto that and sees the news stories about how their network that is failing, the, that this news is actually getting more ratings than they've had in a while. And so she convinces her boss, uh, also wonderfully played by Robert Duvall, that they should get him on the air. Howard Beale, um, they give him essentially his own show to be this ranting madman. And he becomes this spewer of truth. And is f- having visions of talking to God and all of this sort of stuff and becomes a messenger that, you know, rightly or wrongly is, is uh, the, the big thing at the station and changing people's lives because he's as mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. And it's really, he became a voice for the people. And I think that's what people really latched onto. The station 
wrongfully, uh, or wrongly, I should say, latched on to him as an opportunity to start making more money and uh, promote, you know, uh, what is it, Sybil the Soothsayer and all these other shows that they tied into the Howard Beale show. And he became this this voice that then started spewing too much truth against the corporate uh, interests of the company. And that's when your speech that you mentioned earlier uh, that Ned Beatty so wonderfully uh, uh, gives, uh, he comes in and he kind of straightens him out, Mr. Uh, Mr. Beale, in, a, in an interesting, that scene, is, we should talk about how that scene was shot because it's fascinating in its construction. And by the time Ned Beatty finishes his speech, he's right up next to him. He's lit from the back, so he's almost completely silhouetted. And that's when he, that's when Beale says, I have seen the face of God, as if he's looking at God right then. And then he starts spewing uh, other truths about <laughs> the corporate control and how we really don't have anything. And, and, and slides down on the other side of what is 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 really true uh it's the realities of things not just people getting angry but now he's gone across the line to this is the reality and this is why everything sucks and life is meaningless and we're all just you know stuck in it we're just cogs in this great big machine essentially and that, and that, that i think is the most important thing to talk about peter peter french's portrayal of howard beale right that he is completely daffy that he is what we just what we learn in in act two we we believe we have learned that he is standing up for uh for you know the rights of the people right that he is the 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 robin hood of intelligentsia and what we learn at that pivot after the uh the uh, you will atone mr beale uh, mm-hmm. speech is that he he also slides, as you say, he slides down on the other side. He completely lays down on his uh, on everything that he had stood up for, and yet, miraculously, uh, he is right in both acts. Yeah, exactly. That's what's frightening is he is right in on both sides of the line when he's preaching. He's absolutely preaching the truth. Yes, and that that I think is that is what makes Howard Beale. Such a legendary character and, and such a prognosticator. Yeah. Go, I interrupted you. Go on. No, no, no. But, uh, but, and then what happens is the corporate uh, interests like the direction that he's going because he, he's now preaching the truth about uh, essentially the corporate interests. Well, unfortunately, it's not doing good for the ratings. And so there's this amazingly horrifying meeting with all the network executives who essentially sit around a table and decide, well, the best thing that we can do since corporate won't let us, uh, you know, fire Beale and, and cancel the show, best thing we can do is just to kill him. And so they hire these these uh, crazy, what is it, ecumenical liberation army uh, right. members that they're doing another show with to kind of basically sit in the audience and assassinate him. And it's, it's, it's horrifying. And they, it, yeah, and they do. I mean, it's not a, it's not a gaffe. No, they actually do assassinate him. Yeah, horrifying. It's well, it, it is horrifying, and that's where you, you know that's where you sort of draw the line. You, I, and I, I felt like I was watching it. You know, after reading how Chayefsky really pitched this as and uh, Lumet as as reportage, uh, I sort of have to hang my hat on, uh, you know, black comedy. Yeah. Uh, on this one, because it's it's a little it, it's it's a little much to to believe anything otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's definitely 
they definitely balance that line of the comedy all the way through um, with the with with the preaching the truth and and opening people's eyes in a way to mm-hmm. things that are going on. Uh, this is a movie. I talking about Howard Beale's uh, trajectory. This is a movie where I like the voiceover. It's it's not an overbearing voiceover. It's actually done very simply. It's done in as kind of an omniscient voice. It's not a character in the film. Very effective. Very effective. It's very I much like a, it too. a broadcast. Uh, it, that that I think the voiceover actually changes the tone of the film. It 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 moves it as you say more from uh you know from this kind of dramatic fiction to documentarian kind of tone and and uh, um, you know it's it might as well be Cronkite, um, you know reading to you telling you some the the news of the day. Yep, it's done very very well. And it's uh, it's done by Lee Richardson, who was in Pritzi's Honor. Something else that we talked about here. Indeed, close yep. the loop. Uh, we got to talk about the cast and um, uh, uh, the cast. Uh, immense. Bench yeah, it's like where, where do you cast. start? Yeah, where, where do you even start? start? You know what? I, this movie is full of fantastic little monologues, right? Uh, we get, and and fantastic big monologues. And fantastic big monologues. <laughs> this is a monologue-y, uh it, it is a a rich in monologue script. Uh, the uh, there are a couple that stand out to me. The the William Holden uh, monologue to Faye Dunaway. Uh, Peter Finch obviously has a lot of them. Uh, but the 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 sequence I think we should I, I would like to start with this uh, uh, Louise Schumacher to her uh, uh, husband uh, mm. Beatrice Strait. Yeah. The wonderful Beatrice Strait, who unfortunately appears in Endless Love. <laughs> oh, God. Closing. But, but redeems herself with Poltergeist. Wow. You, you had to do that, right? I, I, well, I was just, I was happy to see her. I thought maybe she'd bring the film up a little bit, but she wasn't in it enough. Beatrice wow. Strait is amazing in all 10 minutes of screen time that she has yeah. in this film. So amazing that she actually won a Best Supporting Actress for her role. Uh, she just is. She's wonderful. She's, she's wonderful, right? It's one of the most heartbreaking scenes I have ever seen. And, uh, and this is a 35-year-old 30, film now, 37-year-old film. I mean, it's, it's old, but she's just so good. And it's just amazing to watch her. One of the things that I think is so, the gift that she gives this film, right? That that you you see her a few times, right, in throughout yep. the film, leading up to the sequence where uh, where Max comes clean on the, his affair, and uh, uh, the fact that she was she's an ancillary character leading up to that scene, and yet we still really fall in love with her um, in, in that sequence as she is you know coming to terms with the fact that that her husband is just is being unbelievably forthright mm-hmm. uh, in his feelings about this other woman and and about his wife uh at the same time and having to hold these things in his head at the same time i mean it's it is a, a brilliantly written sequence but the fact is we fall in love with this character that we only see as you say for a couple of minutes in this film and yet we, we obviously we fall in love with her she she wins the academy award she's fantastic and you know, and a lot of that, uh, the strength of her performance goes to the honesty that is also, uh, she's exuding honesty in it, but also the honesty coming from William Holden, who she's playing opposite in that scene. And and his portrayal is equally brilliant. It, it's, you know, in that particular scene, it's, it's a much, um, he's just, he's kind of reacting to her 
more so. But um, you know, he equally gives as honest a performance in this film. And this the moment you mentioned when he's talking to Diana, uh, I'm assuming you mean the one toward the end of the film. Exactly, when they're about to part ways. Yep, before, yeah. Before, yeah, the one right before they part ways. Right. One of the most heartbreaking scenes, and it's it's so powerful watching him have you know all these realizations as he's talking to her and just watching his face and the emotions flooding through him as he talks to her. And then it keeps cutting to her, and you just see that this is a vacant person who is trying to find those sense of emotions that he's expressing. And you can see that she truly is this TV generation raised on Bugs Bunny who just can't tap into what those emotions actually are genius scene when he looks back at her and says you know i'm riddled with guilt and i'm riddled with these feelings that you don't understand but that my generation sees as just good old common decency yeah uh it just he is uh yeah i I mean you know it's it's not too trite to say they just you just don't see performances like this as often as we as I I want to, uh, you know, it makes it's just fantastic. No, and I mean, and um, it's funny because um, Aaron Sorkin, when he won the Oscar for The Social Network, he brought up Pat Chayefsky and Network, and I can't remember what specifically he said, but I think it was interesting as somebody who also I think writes very sharply and great characters, and and, and has is close to writing like this. It's it's nice to see him recognizing that in his speech, even. You know? I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You you told me I think it was a couple of weeks ago. We, I brought up the uh, uh, the newsroom. Yeah. Have you you haven't watched any of newsroom, right? I I still haven't. I still haven't. Yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating, and I you know I think there are people who are you know really divided on Sorkin and and his writing, and see him as as you know he's he he writes great tight dialogue, but you know boy when he wants to get a, his point across, he can be pretty overwrought. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there's there's probably some truth to that. I think he he knows he, he's one of those writers that has the sort of constitutional gift of knowing where our buttons are. Uh, and so we may feel it's overwrought. And I certainly feel this way in newsroom uh, that some of the writing, you know, is is overwrought and heavy handed. And yet, you know, I, I say that in the same at the same time, I'm like wiping tears from my face. Right. So how mm-hmm. bad can it be? But when you compare Sorkin and Chayefsky, I see them filling the same role um, generationally. And uh, I just see Chayefsky doing it uh, with a scalpel and not so much a mallet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I I think that's what we demonstrate with. And and the properties are so similar. I mean, so radically similar, right? We have a network network news anchor comes off the rails, a cable news anchor comes off the rails. And then we have a, you know, I mean, it's the same story. And yet what we're seeing in these is, is a just scalpel precision mm-hmm. uh, in Chayefsky's work. Yeah. Right, who's next? Um, Peter Finch, I, I think, uh, is fantastic as the prophet. And the, the tragedy of it is that while they were doing the awards uh, publicity after the film had come out, kind of prepping for the Oscars, uh, Peter Finch was traveling with uh, Sidney Lumet and uh, Sidney Lumet came to greet him in the hotel lobby and he saw Peter and Peter just kind of fell over and he died. Uh, Just right there in the hotel room uh, lobby, he had a heart attack and passed away. And just just a tragedy, like right before the the Oscars and, uh, you know, he just, he didn't make it and he was the first person to, uh, to win an Academy Award posthumously. 
um, for a performance that I think is indelible and, and one that uh, rightfully is remembered as, as just one of the all-time great performances. Truly. Uh, and held the record until uh, 2009, Heath Ledger. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely fantastic performance from uh, from Peter Finch and, and uh, remarkably memorable. Uh, you're who, absolutely right. Who almost didn't get the role uh, because he's Australian and he had been performing in England in British films and uh, I think theater for years. And and Lumet was afraid that uh, he 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 felt he had to absolutely cast someone who was an American. And Finch had to really win him over to prove that he could do an American accent. So he did. And luckily uh, for us, he he got it. Uh, Peter Finch wins Best Actor, uh, Beatrice Strait, Best Supporting Actress, Best Actress also uh, crushing it in this film, Faye Dunaway. Yeah. And William Holden, of course, lost to Peter Finch. And Ned Beatty uh, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his another very brief role and a very last minute role. He came in at the last minute, like literally he got the script, was memorizing lines on the plane flight over and uh, had to do it the next day. He was uh, filling in for somebody who wasn't getting the the role right. But he lost to, I believe, it was Jason Robards in All the President's Men. Which is okay. It's a, it's, it is okay. Yeah, it <laughs> You're going okay. to lose, we're lose okay to Jason Robards. It. We're okay with that. But this film won three of the four uh, acting awards, and I believe it was the uh, – um, it hadn't happened since – gosh, what was the film right before that had done that? I want to say it was um, – Oh, I'm gonna. It's gonna come to me. I can't remember right what now. Was the, what was the first movie you ever remember was, seeing? Uh, Ned Beatty in Street Streetcar Named Desire. That's what it was. Um, Superman. That's my problem. That's my challenge with Ned. I love Ned Beatty, and I I I learned I always... to love him. But I couldn't. I got Mr. Luthor. Mr. Luthor. Mr. Luthor. <laughs> That's exactly. You totally can't what shake it. I think of, and then of course, you know, as I get older and I'm trying to, you know, get out of that Mr. Luthor thing. Yeah. Uh, then I go and watch, um, oh, what is it? Deliverance. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, I have a whole exactly. different picture of Ned Beatty in my head. <laughs> oh, my. Totally. Oh, poor Ned Beatty. Yes. Good choices. <laughs> Memorable choices. Memorable choices. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right. So who's next? Um, you uh, know, just, just a few uh, that are worth mentioning. I think... Uh, uh, I, I kept recognizing her every time I've seen this film, but I could never place her. Conchata Farrell is in this film uh, briefly as one of the women who works with um, Diana, uh, right, Faye right. Dunaway's character. And I always guess I know her. I know her from something. And uh, sure enough, she's one of those, oh, I know who that person is sorts of faces. And she's in everything if you look her up. And she's actually, I think won or has been nominated for some Emmys for her work in Two and a Half Men. She was in Edward Scissorhands, Aaron Brockovich, True Romance. She's just she, one of those faces that's yeah, in everything. She is, and she was on, wasn't she on TV for a long time? Um, yes, lots of TV. Yeah, she's been on TV. She was, uh, she, yeah, she's, she, <laughs> she is one of those faces. Yeah, she truly uh, is. Now I'm going to be think. I'm going to be really stressing over this. What was she in? L.A. Law. Yep. L.A. Law. That's the one. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, who else do we have to talk about? We've got. Um, well, I think I mean, we talked about the big, the big uh, award-winning performances here. 
Yeah, and then uh, the only last one that I wanted to mention, just really just for uh, trivia purposes, mm. is Kathy Cronkite, Walter, Walter Cronkite's daughter, is in this film playing Marianne Gifford, the um, the girl who's who you know has kind of been kidnapped by the ecumenical, ecumenical yeah. <laughs> liberation army and has kind of been swayed to them much like the uh, the true story you know we, we haven't talked about robert duvall as Frank yeah oh, and robert duvall yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. what, do you, what do you say about robert duvall he's young yeah. but still bald yeah i know i don't think he ever had hair yeah because even when he was playing boo radley i think he was still he bald. was still bald <laughs> yeah he's a, yeah i mean really you just can't go wrong ever no with robert duvall no uh, he is a fantastic, uh, he's the, what is his actual role as a studio president? He's the, uh, he he's is the president of programming. Of programming for the, for the role. And, and then, um, he, and then, and then once, um, the, uh, head of the network dies, he takes over and is running the network. Right. Yeah. And, and, I uh, you know, he is, um, you know he is the uh the the sort of a vessel of evil for broadcasting you know they they have this great sequences you know this this violates every canon of respectable broadcasting we're not a respectable network he says says we're a whorehouse network and we have to take whatever we can get yeah uh and and that is uh that that's the nature of the the good and evil of this film and he's got he he just is he's they, full they of all them. have God, they're full of this is such really. Yeah. brilliant dialogue it's ripe with brilliant lines it really is uh, and we i'm i'm posting a link to the script just it's it is one of those scripts that is absolutely worth reading there's just as much joy in reading this script as there is watching the film absolutely absolutely okay you want to talk about Sidney lumet yes we should talk lumet uh just you know here's a guy who uh really has done uh, nothing but make great films. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you look at his body of work from, I, I mean, he started it in TV actually with Chayefsky. That's where they met, I think, working on uh, one of those live shows that they were doing back in the 50s and 60s. And then he started making his uh, feature films. I think his, uh, what was his first film? Was it, tw- 12, was it 12 Angry, Angry Men? Men? Yeah. 12 Angry Men. I mean, right out of the box, he, he makes 12 Angry Men, just an absolutely genius film. And goes on to make a slew of other great films, and uh, I mean, this, the '70s was ripe with uh, wonderful films out of uh, him: Dog Day Afternoon, Murder on the Orient Express, Serpico. Serpico. I mean, yeah, uh. he really just uh, did a lot of great stuff. The Verdict he did in the '80s, Prince of the City. You know, the great uh, thing about Lumet is that he's—I I love his films so much, and I don't feel he's one of those directors that you you love and feel justified in loving, not that you have to love him because you're a, a film snob. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he makes great films, and he's also not a filmmaker who feels he has to um, say, oh, this is a Sidney Lumet film. Can't you tell? Can't you tell? Like, he doesn't feel like he has to put a stamp on it that says this is Lumet. He just makes a great film. He has no problem saying this is a Patty Chayefsky story. It needs to reflect that. It doesn't need to showcase the magic of what Sidney Lumet can do with making a film. Sidney is there to direct it and to make a great film out of the mm-hmm. words that Patty, uh, Patty put out there. What a great think, relationship that is. What an honest kind of relationship. 
yeah, I think he felt that way, probably with most of the uh, the scripts that came uh, came through for him. And and you know, I mean, he he cranked out great film after great film. He's somebody we should talk about more one day. We should. We should do all of them. Every um, what, one of did you 72 see, films. <laughs> did you see uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead? I think that was his last I one. I did. I did. I quite like that one. I did too. It's just, it is a really hard film to like because it's so hard to like those characters because of everything they do. Yeah, there's nothing nothing really good about it. But it's one of those that I, I only bring that up because you look at 1957, 12 Angry Men, right? And then 72 films later, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Uh, and every single I, I mean it's just it's hard to look at that list and think of a movie that that you really wouldn't want to watch again yeah oh, except maybe gloria and the whiz i'm sort of done with the yeah whiz. Okay, maybe so equus there are, there are maybe few. equus there are, there are a couple yeah right. i've never seen equus I, i'll have to see that one at least once before i can mm, rip it apart mm, you know it's not not because of his i actually have not seen his film but i saw it on stage what are you gonna do yeah. I, i'll have to see it one of these days Ooh, naked uh okay um so uh, who's next so you wanted, to, you wanted to talk about some of the production of this right before we I, well and let's get into road. that right now i want to talk about the cinematography yeah. owen roisman uh was the director of photography on this film a cinematography we've talked about before he did the french connection um he did the exorcist he did uh just lots of great films and he gosh he was nominated for an oscar for this film and he's nominated for five Oscars. Uh, let's see. The French Connection, The Exorcist, Network, Tootsie, and Wyatt Earp in 94. So he's, uh, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. A uh, lot of nominations. He's, he's a cinematographer, I think, who really just knows how to make a film look great. Now, this is an interesting film where uh, he and Lumet talked about quite a bit as to how they wanted the look of it. He, they wanted, right at the beginning of the film, everything to look normal, nothing to look really kind of out of line. It all looks good. As the film progresses, as characters get corrupted, they wanted the camera to get corrupted. They wanted the look of the film to get corrupted. So as the film goes along, the lighting becomes more extreme. And it really starts when, I believe it's at nighttime when... Um, Howard Beale has started his his kind of crazy ranting show. Max is sitting in his office, just kind of listening, and he sees that Diana has walked in. From that scene forward, it really starts slowly changing. You don't really notice it, but by the time we're at the end of the film, you've got some pretty intense and dramatic scenes. And the way they're lit, it's very specific lighting. And the scene with Ned Beatty, when he comes in, the way he dims the lights, or sorry, closes the curtain, all you have are these, this row of, of this massively long table of those little green desk lights running down the whole length, lighting it up. And the way they start that shot from the far end of the table in this wide shot, and you have Ned Beatty as this little man in a spotlight standing up preaching from the end there. And in this darkness with just these these table lights lighting him. And then the camera, every time we cut back, the camera starts pushing and compressing the... Uh, we, we change lenses and we're compressing it. So he's getting more compressed closer to us. The lights are getting bigger and they're filling the space more. And the way they, they do that scene is just so fascinating because then Ned Beatty walks around through the darkness, ending up basically backlit by all of these lights. And like I was talking about earlier, it's like he's now God. 
And I, I think that that scene really exemplifies what Lumet and Roisman were trying to do with the, this corruption of the image and making it go from normal to introducing us in and embracing us in this this corrupt, frightening world that and crazy world that the film uh, really takes us into. I'm I'm glad you brought that up about the compression because I think that scene does something really spectacular. It that table is immense, and through the course of this operatic speech, um, you know, we get. Uh, by virtue of changing lenses and moving the camera, we mm-hmm. get this feeling that the characters are coming closer together, even though they are not, until the very end when they are suddenly nose to nose. Right. Right. And that's a that's an interesting trick. This idea of compressing this massive space between them using the lens uh, almost makes that transition to having them so intimately close at the end uh, even more powerful. Truly. Uh, it, it just leads us in a really interesting way. And then it, we go from that to the final uh, scene, the final show, right. where he gets assassinated. And just the pools of light that are on the stage and everything, it's just so dramatic. It's its really dramatic. And the, and the way the world has changed, its it's taken us into a very dark place. So it, fascinating work by, by Roisman. The... Um, it, you know, and the the end, uh, the the last scene, and I don't know. Are there other sequences you want to pull apart? No, that was the, really you? the specific one. Yeah, it's very powerful, and I think we go back to this narrator voice, right? It's this the 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 film opens with uh, the narrator. You you know, uh, they're showing some kind of a montage of newsmen, and uh, the narrator well, it's says, like, "It's this like is, it's like the four screen, yeah, yeah. monitor wall of in right. a newsroom, right? In an editor, in a, yeah, in a newsroom." Uh, and the narrator says, "This story is about Howard Beale, who was the network news anchorman on UBS TV." And then we hear a little bit more about Howard Beale, and then it closes, uh, and we have this overhead shot of Beale, who has been shot three times from three different angles, uh, three different assailants in the audience. And he is laying back, sort of prone on stage, and the camera, as you know, I should say, as if, but on cue, moves in to Howard and tilts down. So you, you, but we're above the camera as it moves in and tilts down. We see the studio camera tilts down, and the narrator says, "This was the story of Howard Beale, who was on the network, who was the news network news anchorman on UBS TV, the first known instance of a man being killed because he had lousy ratings." And then he fades out, and that's the that's the end of the film. And I think that is a that I mean, if that doesn't ring like a punchline, I don't know what does. Yeah, absolutely. It, and it's you know, and speaking to that, it's also interesting that just just the play on words of you know, he gets shot by these guns. The camera pushes in, and the camera is also shooting him. Exactly. In a way, it's turning us into just as much of an accomplice in this murder by giving him lousy ratings and and we're responsible for his death. Right. It's a fascinating indictment on uh the viewers and what responsibility we have in a way by the decisions we make based on what we want. Well, that's right. You know, this is the uh this is the idea of eyeballs as currency. Um you know, if we just because we we uh, or or you could you could make the pitch that what Chayefsky is and, and Lumet are saying here is that you're you're not actually really being passive when you yeah. when you're dealing with this box. You you are taking an active role in what happens on the air by the choices you make. Yeah. I think about this as I turn on Hulu 
and find myself absentmindedly sucked into uh, season 47 of The Real World. <laughs> Still on the air, The Real World. My goodness. They're in Portland goodness. this season. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. That's uh, the only I, reason I don't, I'm excited. I don't watch it. So, yeah. No, I didn't either. I haven't watched it since I was in college. And now right. here we are, uh, 87 years later. Still oh, my air. goodness. Same thing. Anyway, fantastic. Fantastic film. What do you, it what really you it's it's one of my all time favorites. I mean, it's it's in my top twenty. I just easily, I, I love this film, and I think it's a stellar piece of work. It you know it was nominated for ten Oscars. It won four. Uh, Patty Chayefsky for writing it, and then the three actors we've talked about. Um, the other nominations that it was nominated for, um, uh, gosh, you know, I think of all of them, I I think I would have been happy to see. It would win all of them. The biggest one for me, and you know, I'm still. It's it's hard for me to uh, uh, pick in the best uh, picture category, but I think between this and all the presidents, men, I would go with network. I think network for me, and maybe it's because I'm in the industry, you're in the industry. You know, I, I just, I, I, for me, I just feel so much more attached to this film than any of the others that, uh, that, uh, were nominated that year. Um, and what was the list of nominations? Uh, gosh, let me find it here. The best picture it was all the president's men bound for glory network, Rocky, which won and taxi driver. Rocky. And Rocky is the one that won. Wow. The most, I think it made more money that year than anything else. It was the number one film of 76. It really kind of came out of nowhere and, uh, and surprised everybody. And you know, then, then there you go. It won best picture as well. Oh dear. The, it would be the bottom of my list of those five. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I like Rocky, but it, for me, it's not best picture. You know, one of the things we, we haven't really talked about, and, and I, I don't believe I'm really equipped to talk about it, um, is the role of the of that other plot line, right, of uh, Diana's, uh, you know, ecumenical uh, liberation organization and what is going on uh, with the shows that she is looking to to pitch, the anger shows and, and the role of... Uh, the people involved um, in in that particular show, yeah, because it's interesting and and the play that you get between these two uh, these two plot lines that what she's trying to develop as these new you know sit tragedies and what Beale is is you know both railing against and um, you know at us and around us uh, it, it it plays very well but we we. Are, tend to be so focused on the Beale angle that it's um, that that sometimes that other powerful story actually gets a little bit lost. Yeah, you're right. It does, but it it equally plays into this whole uh, psychology that's going into the choices they're making in the programming that they're developing. Right. I think one of the most frightening scenes for me, uh, because I think it's so true, is you know we 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 see her meet. Uh, Are <laughs> you going to talk about the basement negotiations? Yeah, the basement negotiations. Uh, but we see when we see her meet the uh, the radical leader. Uh, I can't remember her name, Laureen. Yeah. Um, early on, and then we see the initial meeting of of the great Ahmed Khan, and we see you know talking about this thing. But then later in the film, they're having the negotiations about their shows, 
and you see them. These are the, these terrorists, and they're all arguing about the contract points. And it sounds exactly like what you would hear in in actors or anyone else arguing about their, uh, you know, just all the different elements within the contract. And it's just it's so funny coming out of their mouths because it's just this is what happens once you introduce that celebrity status to these people or to anyone all of a sudden their point of view changes and they start looking at all these little things as to what can i do to keep that status up where it needs to be absolutely and and the fact that ahmed khan stand or has to to actually fire his weapon in order to stop these executives and lawyers from their argument and yeah. just say give her the points uh-huh. And let's move on let's <laughs> as move they on. continue reading this contract. <laughs> it, perfect legalese. It's great. It, it is. Really, so it's, great. Just, it's, it's just, that's one of my favorite scenes in the film. It's it, just so... it is really funny. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I, uh, I'm good. You have other stuff? Well, you know, you do. I, I don't have anything do. else about this film in particular, but I, I, I want to go through, I want to do our own little, since we've been talking about 1976 so much, sure. I want to do our own little Oscar poll. Oh, well, aren't you fancy? That's right. So we already picked Best Picture, I think, right? Of the ones that were nominated, you and I would vote Network. Uh, y- yes. Yeah. Even over all the President's Men, I would still vote Network. No, I would, I would also uh, uh, vote Network as well, yeah. Now, some of some of these, as I read them, we're not going to have seen all of the films or have talked about them on the show, but it's still, we'll, we'll rattle them all off. For Best Actor, we've got Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, Peter Finch in Network, Giancarlo Giannini in Seven Beauties, William Holden in Network, and Sylvester Stallone in Rocky. Peter Finch won for Network. Yeah. I think, gosh, yeah, I think Peter Finch is brilliant. I I there's a there's a place in my heart for William Holden though. I'm really torn between those two. I uh you know it's it's hard to separate the sentiment for me. Um you know the fact that he won this award posthumously. Yeah. He won it for such a uh you yeah. know just a a fantastically, you know, off the rails performance. I I but I, I you know I I feel felt genuinely moved by by the journey that he took us on and so that, that sort of level of complexity of you know c- climbing up the mountain and then coming back down the mountain and completely changing his tune and still being right yeah uh, right. I I find that that was that was pretty powerful stuff yeah I, I, I'm with I, you on I, William I, Holden I mean he was the most human sort of character in in terms of just human presentable honesty in this film and we and we great. needed that we yeah. needed that absolutely to make this film work we needed that character sure we did. Best Actress, Marie Christine, Christine Baralt in Cousin Cousin, Faye Dunaway in Network, Talia Shire in Rocky, Sissy Spacek in Carrie, and Liv Ullman in Face to Face. We've seen, uh, we've talked about two of those here. I would totally go with Faye Dunaway. I think she's one of my favorite actresses from the period. Absolutely, hands down, I would give it to her. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm trying to think about my, I haven't seen, what was the last one? Liv Ullman in Face to Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. So I, I can't really comment. But I, you know, I certainly think she's, uh, Faye Dunaway outdoes, uh, you know, Sissy Spacek. And, and definitely Talia Shire. Definitely Talia Shire. And gosh, you know, I it's been a while since I've seen Rocky, but to me it seems like Talia Shire's role was more of a supporting actress performance. Yeah, yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. All right, supporting actor, we've got Ned Beatty in Network, Burgess Meredith in Rocky, Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man, Jason Robards and all the president's men and Burt Young in Rocky. 
you know, I, I after seeing this movie again, I come back to uh, Ned Beatty's performance. I, I just, you know, as long as we're talking about Beatrice and and her role as as uh, mm-hmm. you know Mrs. Shoemaker, I, I, uh, that's the that is of all those performances, that's the the monologue I come back to most often in just life. Yeah, right? I, I, mean, I, I, yep. His performance really stuck with me, and apart from making fun of. Burgess Meredith and his performance in Rocky. I I don't think about that all that much. Right. I I you know I love Olivier in Marathon Man. I mm-hmm. absolutely do. I would totally pick Ned Beatty as well, though. I think his performance and and you know it's funny. Speaking of the films that we mentioned, Deliverance, Network, and Superman. Look at what this man could do and yes. how varied his performances are. Absolutely. Ned, Ned Beatty, hands down. All right, supporting actress, we've got Jane Alexander in All the President's Men, another very brief per- part, right, as I right. recall. Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, Lee Grant in Voyage of the Damned, Piper Laurie in Carrie, and Beatrice Strait in Network. So we've talked this about is a tough four one. of those films. Yeah, this is a tough one for me. On, on reflection of our series here this week, mm-hmm. or this month, Um I I you know I I'm very deeply moved by Beatrice Strait uh, here, but you know there's there is this thing about Piper Laurie um, mm-hmm. that I find I keep coming back to just in terms of strength of character. The I, well, and here's what I would say about that: Piper Laurie's character is what makes that film. It is the most terrifying performance, and. She is the reason that that film holds up, I yeah, think. Because, that we're even talking about it. Because it's such a, a terrifyingly uh, psychological performance that puts this this young high school girl in the place that she's at. I, I, yeah, I think I would agree with you. I, I may pick Piper Laurie over Beatrice Strait. As heartbreaking, as much as I want to go give Beatrice Strait a hug as soon as I watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I yeah, I think that's I think I'm I'm there. I mean, Jane Alexander in All the President's Men, you know, her per- performance is fine, but honestly, I can't remember it that well. I I don't know if I would call it uh Oscar uh, yeah, winning. You, yeah, but you said it. I mean, I, Piper Laurie is a tentpole for Carrie and and none of those other performances are are tentpole performances for those films. Yeah. And Jodie Foster is great in Taxi Driver, but yeah, Piper Laurie's it. All right, uh, Best Direction, John G. Avildsen for Rocky, Ingmar Bergman for Face to Face, Sidney Lamette for Network, Alan J. Pakula for All the President's Men, and Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties. I, I'm, uh, I, I think I'm going to go with Network. I am too. Man, we, we should have been voting. Network would have swept it, just totally. based on your and my opinion. <laughs> and if we, I mean, think of the power we have if we could actually go back in time. Then yeah, we'd be the future people. That's right. <laughs> we could be the future folk. We could be the future folk. Should we uh, Should we flick chart it and just see what happens? Let's flick chart Let's it. just roll the dice. All right. Are you ready? Uh, I'm ready. Oh, I got to actually get us into you're it. You're not. So you're not ready is what I'm you're saying. I'm not ready. Yeah, I thought great. I was ready. But great. I know. Uh, flick chart, our user, uh, our, our account over there is flickchart.com slash the next reel, and we are we flick chart as you know every week at the end of every show we flick chart our our pick so you can see our top now what is it eighty some odd list top eighty it's it's getting up there eighty five we have eighty five movies on the list yeah what are we gonna do when we hit a hundred 
I'm going to make balloons fall from my ceiling. Really? I'm you just going to do, do a, uh, uh, have a one-man dance party in my, in my <laughs> office here. It's going to be magical. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Network or the Sandlot? Network. Yay! Mar- Marathon Man. Network. Yay! <laughs> the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Are you gonna be? Are you gonna have a hard time with this one? Nope. Network. Absolutely. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. This one's gonna give you trouble, right? Nope. Network. Yep. <laughs> oh, man, I told you it's in the, it's in my top, and and we have talked about very few of my top. Uh, I'm excited films. about this. This is like a building pressure or t- tension. I tell you, network or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ha-ha! This one is going to give you trouble. Please tell me it's going to give you trouble. Yes, because these are both in my top. <laughs> so where do you, where are you going to land? I still have to go with Network. I I think, I mean, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, uh, you know, I've said on the show, it's the film I've seen more than any other film, I think. And I have such a great time watching it uh, anytime I watch it. But there's something about Network that... I don't know. Gosh, now that I th- I'm thinking about it, I'm like, gosh, maybe it is Raiders. <laughs> well, this is why it torments me. Oh. I don't know. It's like, gosh, I can't, I can't pick Network over Raiders. Well, you know, I, for me, it's it's a matter of, um, you know, Raiders is a fantastic adventure, and at the end of Raiders, I don't feel like there is a conversation to be had about the challenges set forth by the character Indiana Jones. Absolutely true. And Network, I, 40 years later, I am still having those conversations when I see this film. It's, it's, it is. It truly is a film about you can have conversations about over and over again. Yeah. And, and so that's why, for me, it would be Network over Raiders. Right. And I, I, it's, I agree. I agree. And it's not the hard... I, I mean, it's not like, uh, gosh, I'm... Yeah. No, I know. It's not like art film conversations. It's like real pop culture, you know, relevant conversations, still relevant today. That's how, I mean, this movie is cement. All right. You ready? Yeah. Network or Jaws? Network. I like how you set it up, though. That was, your delivery was great. Did you like it? Yeah. All right. You you want to know where it is on our chart? (laughs) Yes, I do. It's number one. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I just Brilliant. zip right up to the top there. You know, I really have no problem with that. I don't either. That feels really good. Yeah. One of the all-time great films ever made. I'm I'm glad. You know, it's been a long time since we've had a we've done a film that just crushes the list. It really, really did. <laughs> it really it crushed did. the list. <laughs> uh, people, uh, please. Go to your friendly Netflix and and find this film. If you haven't seen it and you've managed to listen to this whole thing, you you owe yourself a trip to 1976 to watch Network. It, it is absolutely worth every penny of your $2. Truly is. Yeah. Uh, what are we doing next week? We're going to continue. So we finished 1976 now. Uh, bon Voyage 1976. We're actually going back in time. Yes, we for are. our next Chayefsky film. Yes, we're going to jump back to, I believe, 1971, and we're going to watch his film, The Hospital. Excellent. It's been a long time since I've seen this film. I have never actually seen this film, so I'm quite excited to watch it. Oh, this is another buy credit. 
This is, this is. And this, oh, you know, I, I, well, I should say, you know, he won his Oscar for, uh, for Network. He also won for The Hospital. He won three Oscars, right. and uh, we're actually going to talk about those three films. Excellent. Yeah, well, so. I'm very excited about uh, talking about this film. And uh, so it'll be a brief, I think we're doing one more, uh, if you, if you want to do, can we, can we say what we're doing? Well, I just said it's the three that he won Oscar. Oh, for. yeah. So, so you, sure. you already gave it away. Sure, sure. So it's Marty. Yeah. Marty. So we're doing Marty. Uh, that'll be our third. So it's a brief Chayefsky uh, uh, stint before we get into our uh, summer series. Uh, mm. But we're very, very excited uh, to be talking about more Chayefsky. Absolutely. Just love his stuff. Yeah. Hey, good talk. Yes, indeed. Great talking about a great film. I'm out of here. Asta. Da, 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 da. What's that? <laughs> How did we just <laughs> warp into West Side Story? Come on, come on, Tony. Da, da. Let me be your Maria. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> That's enough of that. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.